So we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. It's going to continue, uh, carry us through into uh, Easter. And as we do, I also want to just kind of review what went on last Sunday and be able to bring us up to speed, if you will, on what's going to be going on today. And uh, remember last Sunday, we talked about how we can win for losing. We talked about how um, the, the, there's a cost of discipleship, there's cost of following Jesus, and uh, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And it's an expensive thing, but it's worthwhile, definitely. And we talked about one call, four conditions, and three cautions. And let me just quickly uh, highlight those for you in, in uh, reminding us of, uh, of what we learned last Sunday. There is one call, and the call is for everyone, follow Jesus, and the call is, uh, is there for everyone, but there are conditions involved. The four conditions of following Jesus, one is a desire. We need to have a desire. If anyone would come after me, in order to walk with Jesus, you must first want to walk with Jesus. And it doesn't matter what you've done or how you've been living, everyone is welcome so we need to desire to follow him. We, we walk after him, not ahead of him, allowing him to lead. Another condition of following Jesus is denial. Let him deny himself. Denying self and self-denial, though, we learned aren't the same thing. Self-denial is something like you'd give up chocolate for Lent or you'd, you'd, you'd cut back on social media or something like that. Uh, denying self is that you give up your right to run your own life. Because you no longer own your own life. And so you have that in play, denying of self in that way. And so uh, uh, we should be praying that God would glorify himself in our life today at my expense. Not, there's going to be expense in that in glorifying himself in us. And so we should be able to be praying that prayer that would be at our expense. We can't fully follow Christ while living our lives in any way we please. We need to commit and we need to deny. And then there's also another condition of death. Take up his cross. Uh, when a person took up his cross, he was beginning a death march. And as uh, J.C. Ryle says, a religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. So there's an expense. There's a cost in following Jesus. And we need to consider that as well too. Dying is part of that as well, uh, to the desires of our, of our hearts and being able to follow him and knowing that he knows what's best. And then uh, the fourth condition of following Jesus is devotion, where he says, and follow me. Being devoted in that. And uh, to, follow, to follow means to go with and to be constantly following Jesus. And the depth of one's devotion will determine their impact. How deep you are with Jesus in your relationship will determine how impactful you, you will be in other people's lives. And uh, that commitment to Jesus is costly, and discipleship is demanding, but like I said, it is worth it. And then there's three cautions that come along with this that he gives us towards the end of that portion of Scripture as well, that if you, if you focus only on your own life, you're going to lose it, as, as verse 35 talks about in, in Mark chapter 8. And then if you focus only on your own success, you'll lose your soul. And a good caution there as well, too, that we shouldn't be focused on what we can do in our success, but what can we do for others? What can we do to further God's kingdom and looking to the needs of others? And then a third caution was if you are ashamed of Christ, he will be ashamed of you. 
So those three cautions come in line with the four conditions which envelop one call. One call that uh, encompasses it all. But there is a cost to discipleship, but there's an even greater cost to not following Jesus. And so, uh, again, weighing the cost, weighing the price. The call to discipleship is costly, but it is totally worth it. And then uh, we move to chapter 9, Gospel of Mark, and we see here a, a number of events that go on. There's the transfiguration that happens. You have Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all together in one place, and, uh, and, and Peter and James and John kind of witness what's going on as well, too. And you got Peter there giving his suggestions and input, of course. But uh, uh, from there, then they come from there down off of that, that mountaintop experience, to the rest of the disciples and find out that apparently there's a boy uh, with an evil spirit that these disciples cannot heal. Something's gone wrong. Something's happened here. And in chapter 9, we see this in these verses 14 through 32. And Jesus uh, comes down and he says, well, let me take care of this. And he does then finally, paraphrasing this portion of scripture, of course, and uh, he heals the boy that was, uh, had that evil spirit in him. And a good question came about uh, on this as well, too. How come, how come your disciples can't heal? You know, what's going on here? And, and uh, then Jesus pulls them aside and he talks to them about it. And he says, there's some things that only prayer can bring about healing. And so it gives us a, a little insight on the different ways of how God works in people's lives. And prayer is so important, uh, being able to pray for one another. And that's why I believe, you know, Thursday... Prayer groups uh, is very important for our ministry and how we move forward and uh, getting insight and direction and praying for one another and the needs of one another. So prayer is important. It needs to be priority in our lives. And then from there, then they, the disciples start talking about who, the, who is the greatest. And Jesus catches on a little bit on, on this and he, he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, uh, but uh, who is the greatest? And then Jesus gives them an answer about this, though, too. He says, whoever wants to be first must be very last, and also, too, must just serve all if you want to be the greatest. And uh, moving from there, from that little teaching lesson, the verses 38 through 41, they come up to him and say, hey, we heard somebody that was, uh, that was healing in, in your name, but he's not part of us. Uh, what gives? What, 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 why? How come he can do that? And Jesus was trying to tell him that there's, there's no need to be part of this group. In my name is the importance. If he's part of me and he follows me, <clears throat> he can do these things and, and these things will happen. And uh, basically given the lesson that correct theology is important, but it should never be an excuse to avoid helping people. We should never let uh, differences in that cause us not to help people together. So as we gather together, we've had, uh, in our community, we've had blood drives before that we've brought churches together with that, and uh, churches that sometimes there's a difference in, in belief systems there. But when we can come together and help our community, that's, that's what matters in that situation, that we can work together, whether we agree with each other or not. And so uh, talking about that there in verses 38 through 41, as Jesus was addressing that situation. Which then, of course, brings us to the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at here today. Now, we live in an age when most believe that truth is relative instead of absolute. 
And most believe in life beyond the grave with the assumption that everyone will eventually end up in heaven or some place of utopian bliss. <laughs> but there are others who have denied God and don't believe they would ever be forced to go to hell. And while some may actually believe in a place called hell, they are not worried about going there. doesn't bother them. The Bible reveals that we are all born in sin, separated from God, and condemned because of our sin. We are, un we are accountable for our sin and in danger of this, this place called hell and an eternity at that place. And even though there are those who may believe they would never be forced to endure the, the horrors of hell, everyone is bound for that reality apart from the saving grace of Jesus. There's the belief that we are all basically good, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, we will all uh, be accepted by God, be brought into heaven. That might be a popular viewpoint, but it certainly isn't biblical in that way. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to receive the forgiveness of our sins through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Five years ago, a spillway around the nation's tallest dam in Oroville, California, started eroding so severely officials warned that a 30-foot wall of water could be unleashed on towns below. It's five years ago this last February, uh, this month actually. And around 180,000 people were ordered to evacuate. Now people were rushed to safety and some chose, uh, some chose to ignore the warnings and they put their own lives at risk. Thankfully, though, after a five-day period, the water levels receded and the danger passed, allowing people to return to their homes. Do you remember a man by the name of Harry Truman? And not talking about the president, Harry S. Truman, but the other guy, Harry R. Truman. He was the man that didn't leave Mount St. Helens before it erupted. Many warnings to evacuate were given to him, but he chose to ignore them, and with, the, with his glass of spiked coke in his hand and his 16 cats around him somewhere, they all perished in the eruption on May 18, 1980, over 40 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago, really, but wow, 40 years ago. And our passage today contains some of the strongest words ever spoken by Jesus about the severity of sin and the harsh reality of hell. And if we ignore them, if we ignore the warnings, if we ignore the opportunity to be rescued, we do so at our own peril. And so out of Mark chapter 9, of all the portions we could skip, we will not be skipping this portion of Scripture as we go through this series of Gospel of Mark. Because Jesus cautions us to be careful about how we live. So if you haven't yet turned to Gospel of Mark chapter 9, we're going to be at the end of that chapter, verses 42 through 50, where we'll encounter a series of stern warnings. We're going to learn three things today. Three things today. Don't mislead. Don't impede. Just succeed. And that's the title of the message today as well, too. Those three things we will hopefully be able to learn here today. That is, don't mislead by causing a follower of Christ to sin. Don't impede by causing yourself to sin. And finally, just succeed by living out the cause of Christ. So let's jump right on in this with, uh, with this first warning. Don't mislead by causing a follower of Christ to sin. Now, if you listen to the front half of this, verse 42, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, Jesus placed 
a young child in front of the disciples, and then he picked him up to, to make the point that we must become least and last if we are serious about following Christ. We're called to receive the, forgot, uh, the forgotten, the marginalized, the children, the, the, the orphans, the widows, the poor, the disabled, the mentally challenged, those who are deaf or blind, those in prison, the immigrants, the persecuted, the refugees, the minorities, all these people who are marginalized, we need to pay attention to and remember them. And picking up on that scene, Jesus now refers to little ones who believe in him. He's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see this because he uses a different word for little ones here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 refers to Christians as little children. It says, and now little children abide in him. Now we're cautioned against causing even one of these little ones to sin. And the word for sin here is, for, is from the Greek word that we get the word scandalize. And it means to offend or to entice or to entrap or to put a stumbling block in front of. Most of us don't consider how our attitudes and our actions can be the cause of a fellow Christ follower falling into sin. But First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 says, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. We need to be reminded of that, of uh, living in harmony with one another and not to give offense to people around us. But it's sad to hear Christians say something like, I have freedom in Christ. I have freedom in Christ to do whatever I want because I'm saved and I can do whatever it is and God will forgive me. And our, our, my response to that actually would be, you might have liberty in some areas, but love dic dictates that you and I must watch how we live because others are watching us. We are being watched. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul wrote, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And if that wasn't enough, Paul echoed that sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He said, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So we can do whatever we want but it might not be beneficial, might not be constructive for people around us. Jesus wants us to know how serious it is to cause a Christian to cave into sin. You look at the second part of that verse 42. It says, It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the word translated millstone is literally a donkey stone. A donkey stone. That was, it was so heavy, several tons heavy, that a donkey was tied to it in order to turn it in a, in a circle there. As a stone moved, it crushed the grain below it, beneath it. And the image of, of wearing a millstone hung around a neck, being thrown into the sea, would be absolutely horrifying. I don't know about you, but I, I, I wouldn't want to try to hold my breath underwater and get to the point of not being able to do that anymore and the water coming in. I just, the suffocation. I'm a little addicted to breathing, and I like that. <clears throat> but thinking about being drowned, wow, that's just, it, it, it might hit you as well too. But this is, you know, the, the, the Israelites were aware that the Romans sometimes carried out executions like this. 
by tying those heavy stones around the necks of people and throwing them into the rivers, into the lakes. And yet Jesus said that he would be better off, a person would be better off dead with the worst kind of death imaginable than to cause a follower of Christ to fall into sin. Better for you to go ahead and allow those Romans to put that stone around your neck and down you go, rather than having one of these believers stumble and fall because of you. So how do we cause a Christ follower to slide into sin? Well, there are, there are ways. Let me share a few ways here for you. One way is a direct way, directly, by a publicly persuading them. Uh, you look in the Bible, Eve to Adam persuaded him. Potiphar's wife tried to persuade Joseph in the situation. Aaron when uh, Moses was up on the mountain there, getting receiving uh, uh, the Ten Commandments from him, he was going to bring him down. But Aaron was with the people down below, and uh, um, he went along with what would they wanted to do in the golden calf and everything else. And then, of course, uh, uh, Jeroboam, king to the nation of Israel, he did all sorts of evil. And if you look through First uh, and Second Kings, you'll see how that is uh, depicted. And he is known as the one who has uh, led Israel astray in a lot of ways. There's also practical examples as well, too, how we can directly influence someone in business. In the business arena, you can do something wrong and make others be part of it. Go along or you're fired. Um, family, we can lead our family into evil for our own gratification as well, too. Go ahead and just let them know that you're underage and we can get in a little cheaper. Uh, teaching unbiblical doctrine as well. Uh, the Bible, is the Bible really true? Uh, you know what? I found some things here. You probably should be aware of this. Uh, and just uh, about a week ago, our daughter Maddie encountered someone at Winco, and they wanted to let her know about not only God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God the Mother. <laughs> and she was like, huh? <laughs> and she had a nice little, little short discussion with them about that. Wrong doctrine. False doctrine. Teaching, that's another way of directly influencing one of these people. And any activity with your friends directly following this phrase, everybody's doing it, that can influence them directly. Or the phrase, who's it going to hurt anyway? Those are some examples you can think of how you can influence someone directly into doing something wrong. There's also indirect influence. You can influence them indirectly, privately provoking them. <laughs> um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, talks about uh, the provocation of a parent or father in this. And as a parent, we need to be careful with this because there's a, there's a balance there, isn't there? Now, it talks about fathers exasperating the children, um, but that's part of the provoking that we need to avoid. Because those little children are also looking up to dad or the mom, the parent, in their influence of who God is in their life. But any overprotection, favoritism, unreasonable expectations placed on the child, never, never sacrificing for them and their, their time schedule, uh, neglecting them, discouraging uh, talk towards them, uh, abusive punishment, whether it's verbal or even physical, lack of care for them in any way possible, a lack of concern, a lack of sensitivity, all these things can provoke 
that little one than to think, I, I want out of this. And if this is, this, if, if my dad or my mom loves this God in heaven who is directing him or her, why do I want anything to do with that God? And so then you lead them astray indirectly. We need to be careful in provoking. Then some of you know how to provoke. You've learned it as a child with your brother and sister, right? If you had a brother or sister. I, I was an only child, although I did have a stepsister come in line. And I know I, was, I provoked quite a bit in that situation. But, you know, like on a family road trip, you're sitting in the back seat. Mom and dad are in front. They're driving the car and this long road trip. And you just start glancing out your brother or sister's window. And you're looking out their window. And they're like, look out your own window. What are you looking out my window for? No. And then it comes, Mom, Dad, he's looking out my window. Right? Or it's also, too, the, the don't touch me. And they're like, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Provoking, right? You've probably been there before. I know I have. But uh, you, know, you know the button to push. And uh, we, we've accused our, our, our kids of pushing the button of their siblings, and they know where that button is. And I said, don't push that button. Avoid that. Don't provoke. And then another way we can influence these little ones <clears throat> is sin. It's being a bad example. Doing what you should not. <laughs> Doing what you should not. Being unfaithful to the things of, of God. Being unfaithful to the people of God. Being unfaithful to the word of God. Being unfaithful uh, to prayer. Now, praying rarely. Uh, be, being unfaithful to living an uncompromising life. All these things can be a bad example to those who are watching. We are, we are being followed. So don't lead them into sin by overtly sinning or by abusing your freedoms. Sure, you might have freedoms in Christ, but it might not be their freedoms. They might stumble across the fact that you drink wine or alcohol after dinner. They don't at all. Well, but if, if they're doing it and they seem more godly than me, I guess I should be able to as well. Be careful what you do, because people are watching. They're following you. We are being followed. When we get the feeling that we're so free in Christ that we can just do whatever we want, no matter how it affects anybody else, we're abusing our freedoms. You heard of the phrase, and I've mentioned it before, what parents allow in moderation, children will practice in excess. It's a good thing to keep in mind, but I think that can translate also to in discipleship. What Christians allow in moderation, followers will practice in excess. Something to keep in mind when we think of that bad example, doing what we should not. And then a fourth way we can influence is leaving no example at all. <laughs> not doing what we should. You know, doing my own thing. I, my relationship with Jesus is private, and so it's just between me and God. And I, you know, I, don't, I don't need to talk to other people. I'm, I'm not their keeper. Um, <clears throat> doesn't, doesn't matter what they think. Doesn't matter about me. I'm going to do my thing with, with God on this one. Minding my own business, being a good person. I'm going to get myself to heaven, and I'm going to be there. That's all fine and well if that was true. <laughs> but like I said, people are watching. People are looking. People are learning. They're following you. If we don't do the one another's found in Scripture, we might find ourselves in some bad situations. 
I truly am my brother's and sister's keeper. We do influence those around us. Because my attitudes and actions do affect others, other followers of Christ, I must avoid causing them to sin. And then there's a second area that we'll learn here is too, is to don't impede by causing yourself to sin. I must not ensnare others in sin, and I must also be careful to not become entrapped in it myself. Jesus uses the strongest of all language to communicate that it's better to lose limbs and have an eye removed than it is to spend eternity in hell. Just listen to verses 43 through 48. It says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the the fire is not quenched. So you got the hand, you got the foot, you got the eye. It represents three big ways in how we sin. The hand refers to our actions, what we do. The foot speaks of where we hang out, what, where we go. And, and the eye refers to our desires and what we see. These three areas, if we're not, if we're finding ourselves falling into sin, cut that part off. Now, of course, he's not telling us to go ahead and take a knife and we're going to cut out all these things and gouge out eyes. Um, Jesus wants us to deal severely with our sin in our lives, of course. And, and if, if it were the case that we could just cut off our hand or cut off a foot to keep us from sinning, then we would do that possibly, maybe, I don't know, but it doesn't help. It's not the case, especially because in Mark chapter 7, verse 18 through 23, says, uh, Jesus says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's not the hands, it's not the feet, it's not the eyes, it's what you really desire. And so God needs to take care of the problem of the heart and what's happening there. You can whack off your hand and gouge out your eye and still think of ways to sin if the heart isn't being taken care of. Jesus is not after physical amputation, but rather spiritual transformation. Because sin doesn't start in our hands and our feet and our eyes, it starts in our hearts. We're to deal with disobedience severely. We're, we're, We're to deal with it radically harshly and immediately, as it says here in this portion of Scripture. Too many of us have become way too cozy with sin. If there's a relationship that is causing you to sin, lop it off. If your feet are taking you to a place that leads you to sin, cut this activity off right now. If you're you're a serious disciple of Christ, don't dabble in sin. Jesus is telling us that there is nothing so valuable that is worth going to hell over. And the word better is used three times to help us see that whatever it takes for us to sever ourselves from sin is much better than spending eternity in hell. Let me share, it reminds me of a disarming incident that happened about uh, about 20, eh, 20 years ago. In 2003, a guy by the name of Aaron Ralston was hiking in eastern Utah. While he was descending a canyon, an 800-pound boulder became dislodged and crushed his right hand and pinning his right arm. Ralston had not told anyone of his hiking plans, 
So he knew no one would be searching for him, and if he didn't get free, he would die. So he did the unthinkable. After being trapped for five days, he used a dull pocket knife and cut off his forearm. (laughs) He then repelled nearly 70 feet and hiked three hours before he was rescued. So here's the question. If you were faced with the same dilemma, would you be able to do what he did? I don't know if I would. But if you don't, you're going to die. If you don't take action, you're going to die. He had no alternative. Either lose a limb or keep it and die. So what do you need to do to cut off or cut out something in your life that is causing you spiritual death? What do you need to radically remove? What action do you need to amputate from your life? Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Billy Sunday would often say, One reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. We need to be careful. Sin is not something you play with. Temptation is not something you play with, because that leads you into that sin. And the word hell is used three times in this passage, in verses 43, 45, and 47. And the word is Gehenna. And was used of the city garbage dump outside Jerusalem. There's a pretty horrific background story to this. In ancient Israel, during the reigns of King Ahaz and Manasseh, children were sacrificed to Moloch, the pagan deity. And these sacrifices happened in a deep ravine that came to be called Gehenna. The prophet Jeremiah spoke out against child sacrifice, and King Josiah as well put an end to it, turning this valley into the city dump. And the refuse from the city, including carcasses from animals and the bodies of criminals, were deposited in this dump. And to keep it from overflowing, fires were started that never went out, being fed constantly by incoming garbage. Kind of get a good picture of what hell's like. When Jesus used the word hell, people thought of this, this ghastly garbage pit because people considered Gehenna a cursed place of judgment and impurity, and it came to serve as an illustration of hell. When he talked about it, that's what people thought of. This image of the extreme horror of hell is designed to imprint upon our minds the reality of the never-ending punishment of those who reject Christ, those who reject the rescue, those who reject the opportunity to get out of the situation they're in. Are you aware that Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven? He did. Here are some things we know about hell from the Bible. In Luke chapter 16, hell is an actual place. In Matthew 25, hell is a place of eternal punishment and judgment. In Revelation 14, hell is a place of divine wrath. In Luke Luke, uh, chapter 16, hell is a place of terrible torment. In Revelation chapter 14, hell is filled with misery and pain. In Luke chapter 16, hell is a place of unquenchable thirst. In Matthew 13, hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, hell is where eternal separation happens. If you look at verse 48, Gospel of, of Mark here in chapter 9, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now that is an odd verse. If you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll see that this is a quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, where it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Hell is eternal and the fire is absolutely unquenchable. That's what hell is. And it goes on forever. And those in it can never be satisfied or relieved. The pain is constant, and the pain is horrible, and it continues on forever. And notice the phrase, their, their worm, T-H-E-I-R, <clears throat> their worm. Each worm is assigned to an owner in hell. The word worm is actually the word maggot and represents the internal torments of the conscience as a knowledge of past sins gnaws away with unending remorse and regret. You probably even had those moments yourself where, where you, you've done something you regret. You said something you shouldn't have said. Or maybe you didn't say something you should have said or done. Whatever. <clears throat> as you think of those things, it kind of reminds you, you go, oh, and you feel so bad. That's nothing <laughs> compared to what hell is like. That just gnaws at you constantly, and there's nothing you can do about it, and there's no rescue from it. One of the Star Trek movies, <laughs> The Wrath of Khan, comes to mind. <laughs> Some of you guys, if you're Trekkies or not, but um, where the scene where Chekhov has a big, uh, a bug-like worm crawl in his ear to burrow into his head, and and then causes him, you know, could cause him potential insanity and all that. But that comes to my mind when I'm thinking of this portion of scripture where the worm never dies as as horrific as uh, that movie scene is hell is way more horrible than that now they were able to kill that that uh, little maggot worm thing in Chekhov's head but the worms in hell never die the unquenchable fire refers to unending external physical torments I don't know if anybody's ever had a sunburn before <clears throat> but man if you get a good sunburn and you, you know, then you get in the shower and you put on the hot water, oh my, oh my, your skin just screams at you because you, you can't, just think about that. That feeling and expressed even potent, you know, exponentially even more. External physical torment. The rich man in Luke chapter 16, verse 24, cried out, I am in anguish in this flame. Don't mislead by causing another follower of Christ to sin. Second, don't impede by causing yourself to sin. Cut it out. And finally, we're challenged to just succeed by living out the cause of Christ. As if the passage we've already looked at hasn't been hard enough, verses 49 and 50 come into play. They're among some of the most difficult to understand in the entire Bible. Look at, look at them with me. For everyone will be salted with fire. Okay. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, that is a strange portion of Scripture as well, especially coming off of what he was talking about. 
Now, the word salt is used six different times in one, one form or another in three different ways in this portion of Scripture. So what can we, what can we get out of these verses that, that talk a lot about salt? Well, first of all, embrace suffering and sacrifice. Embrace suffering and sacrifice. Salt and fire were key ingredients uh, of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Every acceptable sacrifice had to be sprinkled with salt, according to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And so when Jesus declares everyone will be salted with fire, he's telling us that as living sacrifices will be refined through trials and sufferings. Unbelievers will face the never-ending fires of hell. And, and here's a question. Would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for his glory? We're going to go through it, but which would you rather endure? I would choose the one that God would provide as far as the, as a sacrifice for his glory. We're called to willingly embrace the salt of a sacrificial life. And another thing we can get out of these verses is that we need to pursue purity and don't become spiritually contaminated. Jesus continues in this portion of Scripture, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The main source of salt came from the area around the, the Dead Sea, known as the, the Salt Sea. And this, this coarse salt often had impurities in it, causing contamination and ultimately leaving the salt flavorless. Salt with no flavor is worthless. You grab some salt on the counter, you want to have your food uh, get a little seasoned, be able to bring out the taste, and if all you're putting on there is just minerals, you're like, how come this didn't work? You'll throw that away. It must not be good anymore. Let's get some new salt. Something that has gives flavor. So it's no good. It's worthless. So do you have any impurities that are contaminating your commitment to Christ. Is there something in your life that's causing the saltiness to be drained out? Have you been compromising as a Christian and have lost your flavor? The world cannot survive without the salt of spirit-filled Christians. We need to be in the world. We need to be around others, and they need to see the hope we have. They can have it too. And then another thing we can get out of these verses is that it, it, we need to intentionally influence those who are lost. Intentionally influence those who are lost. Look at how verse 50 ends. It says, have salt in yourselves. <laughs> Christ followers must constantly be evaluating the, the, the amount of influence they are having on the world around them. We need to constantly be evaluating that. Salt served as a condiment or, or preservative or flavoring and antiseptic. All these things happen. It within salt. And for us as well, too, we can influence the people around us. We need to live salty lives, <laughs> making people thirsty for Jesus. Salt doesn't do any good if it doesn't come in contact with what needs seasoning. You can keep that salt shaker on, on the counter there and go, boy, I wish this food tastes better. Now there's the salt, but I wish this food tastes better. And you know, as a Christian, we're around people. And if we've got the truth, we've got the influence of, of, of hope within us, and we see people around us that have no hope, and living lives that we see, as Bible declares, going straight to hell, we have the solution in us, Jesus Christ as Savior, 
why wouldn't we get out of that salt shaker and season their lives in, in a way of showing them what Jesus can do? We shouldn't be staying on the shelf. We shouldn't be staying in that salt shaker. We should be getting out of that salt shaker and season other people's lives, making them thirsty for Christ, helping them see the hope that they can have in Him. We need to live salty lives. But too many of us keep our salt in the shaker instead of sprinkling it in our neighborhoods or our workplaces or our schools. And a final challenge then also too is for us to be at peace with one another. We need to be at peace with one another, as Jesus reminds us here. This brings us back to earlier in the passage when the disciples were arguing about their personal status and their group's superiority. He's not one of us, but still he can heal people. How's that going on? How come he can do that? And as Christians, if we aren't at peace with each other, we won't be able to offer the peace of God to those who are at war with him. We need to offer that peace. In order to do that, we need to be at peace with one another. Quarreling Christians short-circuit our witness for Christ. Now, here's a little summary, then, what we've kind of looked at so far, what we learned here. Don't mislead by causing a follower of Christ to sin. Don't impede by causing yourself to sin. Just succeed by living out the cause of Christ. Don't mislead, don't impede, just succeed. Something you can think of and hopefully remember through this week. But let me wrap these things up here by giving a challenge to two groups of people that possibly might be present here today, either online or here today as well too. First challenge is that salvation is for those who are not yet saved. Salvation is for you. Have you ever asked yourself where you would be 100 years from now? <laughs> it's kind of a ridiculous question. 100 years from now, where, where will you be? You'll be somewhere and you will be conscious because everyone will live forever. It's eternity. We're going we're to face eternity. Is it going to be with God or without God? You'll be among the, either you'll be among the damned or you'll be among the delivered, either in hell or in heaven. Where will it be? Hell is basically the default location if you don't do anything about it. Everyone's headed that direction, but for the grace of God. But you don't have to go to hell. We, we see in verses 43 and 45 that we can enter life. And in verse 47, uses the phrase, enter the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus took hell for us. He hung on that cross. And he paid that price. When Jesus spoke of judgment, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he cried, and when he drew near and saw the city, he, he wept over it. He cried over the city. He knew what they were going to be doing, the wrong that was going to happen. Jesus loves us that much. He does not want us to go into a hell. He does not want us to be in eternity without him. If you listen to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, it says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, a portion of scripture that the Sunday school class is memorizing. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's very simple. Receive Jesus as your Savior, you have eternal life with Him. You don't receive Him as Savior, you have eternity somewhere else. Harry R. Truman, 
was given the opportunity to turn from his dead-end situation on the mountain and allow the evacuation team to rescue him so he could live. But he chose otherwise. How about you? Here's your opportunity. Opportunity to be rescued. Will you turn from your sins right now, your dead-end situation, and put your faith in the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that you will live? thing is, you're only a prayer away. Only a prayer away. A simple prayer from your heart to his. The other challenge I want to leave with you is the challenge of surrender. It's time to surrender fully so you don't lose your saltiness. Casual Christianity will lead to Christian casualties. <laughs> I've heard that said. Casual Christianity will lead to Christian casualties. And casual Christianity will never change the world. We need to be salty. That dam in California was slowly eroding, which caused cracks and holes in the spillway. Do you, uh, do you have any spiritual erosion going on in your life? Have you, uh, have you been compromising a little bit here and there? You've been coasting along, really not, not doing anything bad, not doing anything really good either. You just coast along, though, that's going to coast yourself right in a place you don't want to be. Connect with God. Grow in Him. If you're just coasting along, though, you're going to head into a catastrophe. If you're ready to recommit, ready to surrender, give your, give your life in that way to Savior right now, you're only a prayer way as well. It's really not difficult. Really not complicated. I guess the complication comes within our pride, what we are willing to do. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you want to silently pray about these things yourself, go ahead and do that. And as I pray, I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come on up and get ready to lead us in the last few songs. But I just want to pray for you all and opportunity for God to just kind of work in your heart today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be with those who are here in attendance today in person as well as who are online. And Lord, if there's a need today, Lord, if there's someone who's, who's joining in with us online or who's here today that, that has, has never received you as Savior, I pray, Lord, that they realize today is the day of salvation for them. They don't have to go on uh, living hopelessly. They can live in a way where they have hope in heaven because you provided that hope. You, Jesus, died on that cross for our sins, went to the grave, dead and buried. And on that third day, you rose and the tomb is empty and we serve a risen Savior, a, 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 a Jesus who's in heaven, preparing a place for, for those who, who trust in him for eternity, eternal life. So I pray, Lord, that there's someone here today that needs to just pray that prayer of salvation that they, they pray that they agree with you, <laughs> yeah, I am a sinner, and that they believe that you died on that cross for, for their sins, and that they would continue then to live their life for you, following you every step, every decision. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress on our hearts the need for that, that space in our, in our life, that, that vacuum in our life, that nothing else has been filling it, but only you can, that, that God space. And so, Lord, if there's someone here today 
that needs to pray that prayer, pray that you'd also give them assurance that as they pray it, you have received them. You have embraced them as your child. They are now uh, going to be walking the streets of gold one of those days, but living in eternity with you. I pray, Lord, that they would receive you as Savior. Lord, maybe there's someone here today, they know you as Savior, (laughs) but maybe they haven't been living like they should. Maybe they've been compromising here and there. Maybe it just didn't, it didn't seem like a big deal at first, but now it's kind of gotten out of hand. Lord, I pray that you remind them that you're a God of second chances <laughs> and third and fourth and fifth. Lord, you are a forgiving God, a God that offers grace and mercy. And no matter what we've done, there's nothing, nothing that will keep us from your love. You love us so much. You want to, you want to bring us in close relationship with you. So, Lord, if there's someone here today that just needs to get back with you to, to, to regain that saltiness in their life again, I pray, Lord, that they would take that time right now and just commit themselves to you, surrendering themselves to you, allowing you to take call the shots, allowing you to, to be the lead in their life. Help us all, Lord, to realize that you are a God that can be trusted with our lives. And Lord, if it's pride getting in the way, I pray, Lord, that that pride would be squashed. Thank you, Jesus, for answering our prayers, for hearing our prayers. And I pray again for full assurance that we have been heard and you've answered. Lord, thank you. Thank you for visiting with us here today. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing these next couple songs, that it would be ingrained in us how wonderful you are, how much you love us, and how much you have in store for us. You only want the best. God, you are so good. We love you so very much. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing these last two songs, and this next song probably could be kind of your testimony if you want, in praising our Lord and Savior.